Okay, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Charlie Robertson. Charlie's author of a book called The Time Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity, and Fertility Are the Key to Escaping Poverty. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. I, I heard kind of about the book on marginal revolution, and I just was totally taken by it. So thank you for, for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I wish it was in person, but one day it will be. Next next one we do. We'll, we'll, we'll wait for you to get to Manhattan, or maybe if I'm in London, I'll do. Uh, I'll rec- we'll get a studio over there. Um, so um, you're the chief global economist at Renaissance Capital, which is a, for anyone in the finance world, a very, very big deal. Um, and uh, you're sort of a counterintuitive thinker when it comes to economics, and you've made predictions over the years that have often maybe weren't understood in the, in the moment, but turned out to be right. Um, y- your premise here is really fascinating. I kind of want to jump right into it, which is, you know, adult literacy, electricity consumption per person, and fertility rate are actually the three metrics that will show you the most about a country's future. Um, how'd you pick those and why'd you pick those? It took, um, it took years um, to, to get them right. And, and I guess in some ways this has been born out of a mistake. Oh, not exactly a mistake, but you know how you learn stuff from from what you've got wrong. Yeah, um, yeah those are, those end up being the best ideas. Yeah. It's, um, so this this about ten years ago, I put together a book with a number of authors looking at all the things that was going right in Africa, um, and one of the themes was education, which I've obviously come back to in a big way in this book, uh, in this new book. Um, but there was a lot of questions that weren't answered in that first book, and that kept on coming up at conferences, and and the the most difficult for me was to do with energy and I couldn't understand why I was experiencing power cuts in Rwanda, in South Africa, in Nigeria. And I, I couldn't understand why there wasn't enough money around. And so I was kept on wrestling with this issue of why isn't there money in Africa already? Um, and eventually I came across enough, I had enough arguments with enough people and, and came across a really key paper, the IMF done on China, that, that said the money they found to to deliver the infrastructure that China's got, the roads, the electricity and everything else, so much money, in fact, they've been giving it to the rest of the world, lending it, lending it to the rest of the world as well. That came as a result of their one-child policy. So I began to look at this issue of fertility and it was, it kind of blew my mind. So let's go each one in order here. So literacy, that one seems, honestly, if you look at the three things, the most sort of straightforward and, and sort of easy to understand, which is higher literacy should reflect a better educated and therefore wealthier um, a country. Um, but dive into a little more. Like why of the hundreds of metrics that you could cite, what made you pick literacy? There's, well, what's weird about it is there's two or three things that haven't been like, absorbed enough, which is that if you know the adult literacy rate in your country 100 years ago, it's giving you a very good guide, very, very good guide as to how wealthy you are today. And this has actually been, the, the occasional academic comes out and notes this. Um, a lot of work was done out in the 70s and the 80s, and then it gets forgotten because it's almost too, uh, too much of a lag. Um, so, so people begin to kind of, it's not newsworthy. Right. Um, but that's certainly a big, big deal. If I look at, at South Africa today, white South Africans who had adult literacy of 90% 100 years ago, you would expect them to be roughly as wealthy as, as Europeans who had uh, the same sort of literacy levels. While, while the black population of South Africa had 7% mm-hmm. adult literacy, um, similar to India. So you'd expect the black population of South Africa to be, to be similar to India's 
per capita GDP. And in fact, that is roughly what the data is showing us today. So education just it's fundamental to anything else. Unless you get that right, you'll never take off. Um, but even but even the academics who look at development stuff overlook just how important it is. Um, even for something like textiles, go and work in a textiles mill. It's the first step after agricultural subsistence farming is you go to a textiles mill. And I got chatting to a guy who ran a textile mill in, in Levi's, actually mill, in uh in Philippines and Sri Lanka. Uh, and I said, why do you need literacy? Because Adam Smith, the guy who wrote Wealth of Nations, the, the father of economics or the grandfather of economics, he, he didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and loads of development economists don't talk about it today. But this guy said, you've got the Levi's coming down the, the conveyor belt. Do you put them into the box named America or do you put them into the box named Europe? You can't even get the basics right. Um, in in a factory, unless you can just read and write in any language, it doesn't matter what language. Right. So, um, so the, the countries who have seen big jumps in literacy, which then leads to big jumps in progress overall, what are they getting right about their education system? They they are doing it sequentially. Um, so one of the one of the challenges I found, or I recognise now, looking looking back at what a lot of African countries are doing in the sixties. Uh, which is a continent I've paid a lot of attention to, um, is they, they were trying to jump straight to kind of universities. We need to have graduates who are going to be innovative and writing research papers and so on. But they left behind the vast majority of the population who, who simply couldn't read and write. And as a result, nothing ended up functioning well. Um, the academics who did get graduate education in, in Nigeria in the 70s we're trying to work with people who couldn't read or write anything. And, and as a consequence, that held back the whole country's development. What the Koreans got right, what the Cubans got right, what the Soviet Union got right was adult literacy first. When that's achieved, primary education for all, when that's achieved, make sure your secondary schools, girls and boys are heading up until 18 and, and then start focusing on universities. So it's got to be mostly sequential. You can't right. say you don't need universities at all. You do, but it's got to be get everybody on board. So so now we have this little thing called the internet, which connects all of us, right? Um, is the internet, especially the coming metaverse, does it have the ability to radically scale adult literacy rates um, or effectively is the way you teach adults to read the same one way or the other and it takes the same amount of time? Uh, my, my kids have learned how to read completely differently from the way I did with these phonics and stuff, which is big in the UK. So, you know, the idea of using new techniques to help people achieve these gains quicker, I think, I think is real. Um, and I, I'd hope the technology can help. And, and the little thing of, you know, smartphone take up, everybody wants to be able to use their smartphone. But, but reading and writing really does help with that. Yeah. Um, it's quite quite hard to put in dot 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 YouTube uh, dot com if if you haven't got a uh, if you don't know how to spell. Um, so, but hopefully that would help. Um, but we haven't seen enough evidence 
uh, I haven't seen enough evidence to show yeah. that it really it's, works. It's too, let, let me ask a quick question about the inverse before we move on to the next one, which is, so it feels like, at least here in the U.S., our education system has been on the decline for a long time, and the concern always is that ultimately the American economy won't be as dominant or competitive as it has been because we won't have the skilled workers that, that we need. Um, does this work in reverse? And like, what countries do you think sort of are on the decline because their education systems aren't good enough? There, I mean, we haven't seen too much of that, or at least I haven't in terms of the countries I look at. One thing I, I am aware of is the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so come 1991, when it dissolved, that had brought very high levels, particularly in the scientific field, of, of, of quality education. And what happened through the 90s when that whole economy collapsed across the board was that funding for education began to deteriorate quite significantly. And, and today you can see that in the data and the wealth levels in, in, say, Central Asia, which have definitely taken massive step backwards. So, I mean, Russia's, even Russia, despite the war and everything, something like 10 times richer today than Uzbekistan. They both had the same education system 25, 30 years ago. So... A complete economic meltdown really, really can uh, distort the data. Um, in terms of the richest countries, I, I don't know enough. Of, that's not the focus of the book. To be honest, I was, I was trying to focus on why are there some countries that haven't yet got out of poverty and what do their politicians need to be doing to end that ridiculous situation? Ridiculous in this, we now know the answers as to how to get out of poverty. So... That's what I was trying to focus on most. Right. So electricity consumption per person seems pretty logical in the sense that wealthier people are just constantly connected to different devices, have more devices, using more electricity. Um, so, but, but how do you get to a place in countries where they don't necessarily have a well-established power grid or anything like that um, to kind of you know that once power is available and if people can use electronics, they're going to want to do it, right? That's human nature. Yep. Um, but how do you get to that first step? Well, the, the, the problem I'm trying to get at in the book is if you're sitting in uh, Kenya today, say, yep. you've got a sustainable kind of development goal. You've got a, a goal that the African Development Bank, all these development guys are looking for, which is that everyone should have access to electricity. And, and you or I, or anybody we know, is going to take that as a, as a given, um, that, of course, everyone should have access. But what, what I'm trying to get at in the book is that every country that's got out of poverty has first focused on creating jobs, giving electricity and energy for industry first, before you try and roll it out to everybody. Because if you give it to people in jobs, in factories, they then have the money to pay the bills, the electricity bills. The electricity company doesn't go bankrupt. It can then roll out electricity to the rest of the country. But it needs to be making money first, and there needs to be industrial jobs. And if you don't prioritize industry, you never earn the dollars you need to pay for the electricity and the energy that you're consuming. So... The point of the book here was that you can't take off without manufacturing. You can't have manufacturing without electricity. And when it comes to energy, electricity, you've got to focus on those jobs first before you, you aim for universal access. How, do, how does renewable energy change the equation, if at all, in the ability of you know, poorer countries to now be able to provide energy to factories and things like that? 
the difficulty here is that your factories need reliable power. And whether it's wind power, which might not blow, or solar, yeah. which isn't great in the evenings or, or the early mornings, or if the cloud cover perhaps is awful, yeah. um, or hydro where droughts in Zambia or Congo can, can drastically reduce their power. Um, the difficulty with renewables is that intermittent stuff. You've got to have a base load. All the energy guys I talk to say you've got to have base load. You know, nuclear in a richer country that can that can do that, or maybe coal even for for countries which just do not have enough power and need to supply factories with reliable power. Battery technology could be the answer here. If we can sort out batteries in a really cheap, successful yeah. way, yeah. then renewables is going to give us the greenest industrial revolution we've ever had in Africa and South Asia. Right. So let's flip it back around again, which is, okay, so you are an extremely poor country. You're the leader of that country. You read your book. You say, okay, um, we've got to be able to first have jobs in order to lead to the other pieces of progress that we need. That requires reliable electricity and energy. The only way we can do that in a way that is affordable is coal. So yes, all the environmentalists and everyone in the Western world is screaming to not use coal anymore because uh, it's raising you know global warming. But you know it's easy for you guys in the West to say this. You have everything already. Yeah. So what, what do you think of that argument w when it gets made, and, and how often does it get made? It gets made daily. I'm yeah. literally I'm, I'm I'm on WhatsApp chats with a load of energy guys in across uh, across the continent, and they are they're incensed by this. They're so angry about this this kind of uh, patronizing European yeah. or American, but often European. Uh, you shouldn't be doing what we did to to develop, to get ourselves out of power. You know, I come from the UK. Coal was absolutely what allowed us to have our industrial revolution. Uh, wouldn't have happened in the UK without it. So the idea that we're now pulling up the drawbridge behind us and saying, oh, and they're saying, okay, fine. If, if you don't want us to use coal, you pay for all the energy then. But we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars that, that actually governments are saying, well, this year, two years ago, we couldn't do it because of COVID. Like this year, we can't do it because of Ukraine. There's, there's always a reason governments aren't prepared to just throw vast amounts of cash at so, other so governments. Nuclear energy, which, you know, just based on, on the science, seems like it has pretty tremendous potential and works yeah. pretty well, and it's relatively low risk. But obviously, the optics and politics are very different about that. Um, is it in the interest of the Western world to say to developing countries like, look, we really don't want you using coal. Um, we'll pay for you to build and, and use nuclear power, which then becomes both a little bit of a test case. You're sort of exporting the risk a little bit. And at the same time, um, you're giving them another way to do this that doesn't sort of hamper their own growth. Would, would, would people be receptive on your WhatsApp chat to that? Or, or would they find that sort of equally patronizing? They're, they're, they're quite keen on the whole nuclear thing. And possibly these kind of modular reactors that are being developed through a lot of US tech, actually, um, I think could be could be very helpful in terms of making it affordable. Um, but it, it doesn't solve the whole problem. It's not just the generation of electricity is the issue. You've also got to pay for these transmission grids. You've also got to pay for the distribution, metering in people's houses to be able to judge how much they're actually using. There's And the, the potential unmet power needs in Africa are immense. Um, so... And, and Pakistan, for that matter, Bangladesh, I mean, a whole load of Asia, too. So yeah. how much, how many tens of billions or hundreds of billions do you want to give? And, and this, this is where I come into the third chapter of the book, because actually it's, 
who's paying for this? How do you finance it? And, and that, that's, that's probably the most revolutionary part of the book. And, and so what is sort of the new mechanisms of financing that haven't been available before that really could all of a sudden make a lot of this more affordable and accessible? Well, that, that comes up in every conference. I'm, I mean, every conference I'm at, in, in, whether it's Nigeria, Kenya, Egypt, South Africa, Pakistan, it's always about where do we get the money from? Is there an easier way to get the money? Can we use mobile money? Can perhaps people could store cash on their mobile phones? Maybe that's going to... And uh, microcredit was, was drawn out of Bangladesh. You lend small sums to, to women and they go out and work and so on. None of this has has been transformational in fact what what i worked out was transformational um just through reading other people's good work was was lower fertility that that when you've got six kids in a family in niger they have no money on a friday night my great great grandparents who had seven siblings they had no money on a friday night drew water out of a well no electricity no wealth no savings and that, that gets borne out on a national scale in, in very high fertility countries. And at a national scale, there's no cash. And there's a constant need. Can, can we borrow dollars from America to, to help us build the power we need, the roads we need? Um, and that's happened over the last 10 years. But the last two or year and a half has been, it stopped happening because Fed has raised rates dramatically. Yep. No one... Uh, in, in, in the lower income countries I cover can now borrow from abroad. The Chinese have made too many loans that have gone bad and yep. they are, they've stopped lending on a net basis in the last 12 months. Um, and, and countries that are high fertility just haven't got the savings at home. So as a result, the whole story's coming to a bit of a grinding halt right now. So what, what changes the social norms in countries with high fertility to then bring that number down so that having a family is, is more affordable? It's, well, leaving us that there's obviously the China option, but I, I, right. I don't think it's much of an option personally. Um, that that one child policy, doing it dictatorially, that, that's, that's not the key. There's, right. there's a few ways to do it. And one of the, one of the, 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 the kindest, if you like, is uh, to stop children dying. If, if you're born in Nigeria, um, you've got a 10% chance of dying before the age of five. Wow. You had about a 1.5% chance of dying of COVID unvaccinated the first time. Second time, you'd have had antibodies, you're much less likely to die. But 1.5% chance of dying from COVID, but 10% chance of dying by being born a Nigerian. Yeah. And, and if that's really well correlated then with how many kids parents have, if, if you think you're going to lose a kid or two, or you do, lose a kid or two. The temptation to have more is, is very high. And governments don't tell people that, or often don't tell people, that, that having large families guarantees, nearly guarantees you your poverty. It will continue. And what I'm seeing among the urban elites in, in Uganda or Kenya or Nigeria is the middle-class urban elites are saying, you know what? We saw our parents and our grandparents have seven, eight, nine, ten kids, and they were in poverty, and we're having two. We're having three. So the, the other key part of this is education. You keep girls in school until they're 18. Their first kid maybe is at 19. If you, the girls leave school at 14 in Niger, 
first kid at 15, second kid at 17, third kid at 19. Right. You've, you've raised the fertility rate by two kids already just by, by kicking girls out of school at 14. So educating girls, yep. stopping kids dying, simple, cheap stuff, relatively cheap stuff to do, and it transforms a country forever. So, so not unlike the question I had on sort of the education systems in first world countries declining, you know, there seem to be populations, Japan for sure, and I oh, think yeah, a lot yeah. of people feel this way about the United States as well, yeah. that we actually don't have enough fertility. And as a result, we're just going to experience long-term stagnation. Um, what are your thoughts around how kind of those types of countries should deal with these problems? Well, I we are, we are yet to see just how how damaging that is. Um, actually, the US is in a pretty good state because you have a fair amount of em- immigration. Um, Japan does not. Korea does not. Korea is about to be the oldest country in the world by 2030. And what, what old countries like Korea are discovering is that it's, they don't know how to get the birth rate back up again. When you've got less than one kid per, per woman on average, uh, it's a real struggle in Italy, Japan, uh, Iran's had this problem. Russia's had this problem. And however many incentives you throw at people, it's proving extremely difficult to to change it once it gets down to that level. Right. So, what, I mean, the, the countries that you've you've mentioned, most of them are, are you know seen as attractive places to live. Why wouldn't mass you know increases in in immigration be the right answer to solve the problem? Oh, it could well be, but there's a cultural and political problem with it um, that, that people have always struggled with with high levels of immigration. I was I was looking at the impact of migration waves that we're going to see, we will see, out of Pakistan, out of Africa, into Europe, and p- perhaps the United States. Um, and I was looking back at the Norwegians turning up in um, the Dakotas about 120 years ago. Yep. And, and they really upset the locals. The locals decided that only English should be spoken on trains because there was too many of these Norwegians coming with their white Protestant ways. So it wasn't a religious issue here. It wasn't a color issue here. It was just simply a, they're different and they speak a different language. Certainly we see that in Japan. There's just not that welcome given to, to immigration. And when you do give too much of a welcome to immigration, uh, too much too much for the, the local population to take, you get a, a reaction vote. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it's fair to say that would be part of what you saw in the States in 2016 or the yep. Brexit vote in 2016 UK or... I, I don't, yeah, so I would say I don't think... We saw it as much in the U.S. because I don't think immigration – look, in, in Europe, you had the Syrian crisis, right, which led yeah, to all yeah. of these migrants, which then flooded you know, so many European countries. And it felt to people who live there, one, overwhelming, and two, like, why is it their responsibility to pay for all of these services, right? Yeah, um, yeah. We have that a little bit right now on the U.S. border because the, they're just doing a terrible job managing the border. But, you know, I don't think we've had mass levels of – you know, Obama didn't, like, radically, as far as I know – increase the immigration levels that then Trump took advantage of. I think that was just more built in kind of xenophobia and just anger and fear. And I would argue to a certain extent, the internet is culpable of a lot of this because it shows people what they don't have 24 seven. And as a mm. result, their agitation level rises and rises. So yeah, so I think that's right. So, so look, there's the Steven Pinker worldview of that I, I kind of like, that the, the, the world is much better than everyone says. The, whether it's you know the metrics that you're using or 
infant mortality or life expectancy or you know extreme poverty or whatever else, the world is the best it's been ever in a long time. And yeah. yet, uh, you mentioned sort of Brexit or Trump. These are very clear signs of a lot of dissatisfaction and fear uh, in, in the Western world. What is the world actually so much better and yet feel so much worse? I, um, it's not in the book, but my, my, my theory on, on some of that is that I think, I think we have a tendency in the capitalist system to, to go through very, very dramatic shocks um, about every 40 years. And there's a good 10, 15 years after that, that, that we are readjusting. Uh, we saw it after the Great Depression. The 1930s was terrible. Mm -hmm. About 10, 15 years later and after World War II, we then entered a boom time, the dream time of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. Eisenhower and Kennedy, it was all great. Um, you then get that horrible shock of the 70s, the stagflationary shock of Volcker hiking rates, dramatically massive unemployment, worst for 40 years. And that was a, another very tough period in Europe and the States, followed by what was relatively a very nice 1990s and 2000s. Um, and I think the global financial crisis then has given us again this 10, 15 years angst of everything's wrong, something needs to change. That was a real blow to our model and, and what we thought was right. Um, and I, I think we are at the tail end now um, of that, that shock. Um, so I, I, I suspect we'll all have a much happier feel about life in the 2030s. And, um, and you don't worry that social media and these sort of totally new things that didn't exist before make that recovery a lot harder because there's just negative reinforcement 24-7? I, uh, I, do, I do worry about it, but I'm, I'm very conscious working in the markets how I keep on being told it's different this time. <laughs> um, and when we went through the global financial crisis and I was saying it, it takes 18 months before the market bottoms. And, and I was told, no, 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 because now we've got social media, information speeds around the world much quicker. And it's like, no, but, but humans haven't changed and we need time to adjust. And yes. It takes I a weekend to sort out a bank. You can't do it in an hour just because we can communicate quicker. Right, right. I mean, so I, I do worry. I'm totally with you on that. Um, but I, I, I feel there is a structural change that's that will leave us in a better place in about five, 10 years' time when we've reached the end of it. Yeah, that's encouraging. I actually do worry a lot that human evolution, which takes place over you know millions yes. of year period, yes. just actually can't keep up yes. with technical evolution, which in some ways is a sign of how far we've come. But at the same time, you almost whether it's Overwhelming yourself through weapons you created that caused you know the the end of everything, or uh, you know forms of energy that make the environment sort of unsustainable, or just even sort of social media that you know the human brain has not evolved enough in some ways to uh, to sort of appropriately manage the things that the human brain at the same time has created. If yes. that makes any sense, totally agree. Um, so so Steven Pinker and you and me, I think, would all agree pretty strongly that. Democracy and capitalism over the last, say, since the end of World War II, so roughly 75-year period, is the biggest reason why we've seen these increases in adult literacy, in electricity consumption, decrease in fertility rate, and just generally speaking, um, much, much, much better sort of baseline for the world. At the same time, in the Western world, there are tremendous critiques of both capitalism and democracy and income inequality and everything else. Um, 
What do you think about those? Are, are those people who just sort of don't get it? Or is it that the system constantly needs to change and update and a couple of changes would probably go a long way? H how do you see it? I, I think it, it gets back to what you were talking about just now of that the world's going too fast for us to keep up. It's, it's hard to, to keep abreast of, of everything that's, that's going on. And I think there is a, a strand of thinking. Um, I see it in conspiracy theories all the time uh, in terms of people telling me that the dollar's controlled by, you know, the Fed, that there's people that, who manage the oil price successfully. And I'm pretty convinced, having spoken to an awful lot of officials and an awful lot of governments, as well as a lot of people in the markets, that's not true. We don't have any control over all this stuff. We try and, and exhibit some control, but we actually don't. And and there's, if you're lucky enough to, to be in a you know decent job and you've got your house and you've got a reasonable pay and everything's going fairly well for you, maybe you can cope with that anxiety of saying no one's in control of what's going on. Mm -hmm. But if you are hit by joblessness, if you're hit by the fact that too much is out of your control. And it's too hard to understand everything that is going on anyway. Yeah. Um, I think it becomes much easier to feel very disgruntled with the system, feel the system must be structuring you wrong. Surely there's a better way. And, and that creates some of this dissatisfaction um, that shows up in lots of different ways. So last question, are there three or four things that really good world leaders do that allows progress to advance very quickly you know, in developing countries? I, very quickly is ensuring everyone can read and write, you know, trying to encourage families to to have smaller, not too small, but just like two to three kids, ideal average, and, uh, and focusing on that rather than being too caught up in what's, what's the news headline for this week or in three months' time. It, it's trying to keep keep that, that, that goal in mind. Um, so, so I, there's the difficulty with democracy, yeah. of course, is is everyone's got an election in three or four years' time. And a right. lot of the stuff that I'm saying is the big payoff, the payoff comes in 10 or 20 years' time. Right, not four. Well, that's why, look, I, I spent the whole first part of my career working in U.S. politics, and the only person I ever worked for that thought more than one election out was Mike Bloomberg. Um, and he <laughs> would think 20, 30 years out, but of course his critics say, well, he already had billions of dollars. Of course he could afford to do that. So you know, given what you just said, you talked a little bit earlier about kind of human nature being what it is, and it's just very hard to defy that. Um, that's why generally, in my view, politicians do get caught up in the latest headline because mm -hmm. they want affirmation and validation and relevance far more than they actually care about solving an individual problem. But it seems like, you know, just based on, on your work, some leaders have managed to sort of overcome that to a certain extent and make decisions based on the long term. What is it about them? Do they just have a different human nature or like how did they escape this? I, I haven't worked that one out. And the I mean, it's, it's really easy to point to someone like Lee Kuan Yew in yeah. Singapore who said, right, this is my vision and this is what we're going to achieve. And he was a very bright, uh, clever guy who just who had control. Or, or you could look at Kagami now in Rwanda and say that arguably he's he's doing that too. And he doesn't have to worry too much about elections and so on. He's, he's been in power a good 20 years already. But I'm in a way more interested by those leaders who weren't in power for 20, 30, 40 years, but for 10 years did the right thing. Those leaders back in India in the 80s or the 90s who've helped India now achieve the adult literacy it's got 
um, and the low fertility, which is why India's booming. It's why it's going to boom for the next 50 years. And it's not Modi. It's, it's the guys who didn't get the recognition, but, but were only in power for 10 or 15 years' time, uh, you know, back in the 80s, 90s. And I don't know. What, what, what is it about them that they, they get it right? Um, I haven't got the answer, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, they see, I, to a certain extent, I'll tell you this, the more that people like you and me can try to figure it out and then reward them publicly, the more yes. the incentives shift for everyone else to want to do the right thing, not because they care it's the right thing, but because they want to receive the praise and validation yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. Um, Charlie, how do people find out more about your work? Um, just generally, how do, how do people learn more about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot, um, uh, at Redencapman, um, which is short for this Renaissance capital uh, so Ren Catman. And um, also I've got a little Twitter account for the for the book too. Um, and then there's a free introduction for the book. Um, uh, the at TTT Economist is the Twitter handle for the book. And there's a free introduction there. So you can take a first taster of the introductory chapter there. See if you like it. Um, the book again is called The Time Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity and Fertility are Key to Escaping Poverty. Charlie Robertson, thank you so much. That was a wonderful podcast. Yeah, and it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you.